Our reading is from Galatians chapter 1. Let's ask the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, it's one thing to hear your word, to read it. It's another to live it. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, move us to serve and love you and one another better. Amen. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of the Lord. We are continuing today in our new series on uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians and looking again at these opening verses of the letter. Last week, we noticed that Paul begins the letter with two rather different tones. First, in verses 1 to 3, uh, he emphasizes the resurrection of Jesus and the grace and peace that Christ's sacrificial death won for believers. And we said this is really striking and important that he starts out this way. Uh, even though he's going to say some hard things uh, in this letter, his starting point uh, for, the, for these churches is grace and peace is yours. Uh, Jesus is alive. Uh, God has given himself to you uh, in his son. It's a message of joy. It's a good reminder for us. Uh, we said last week, grace and peace is the starting point for us all, always, in all our relationships because of what Jesus has done. But we also hear another tone beginning in verse 6. Paul speaks words of astonishment 
about what is happening in these churches in this region of Galatia. Uh, the emotion here is heightened when you realize that in almost all of Paul's other letters, he begins at this point in the letter by giving thanks to the church to which he's writing. Uh, we would expect him to say, uh, the pattern is, after the grace and peace, uh, he would say, I am so thankful for you. But instead he says, I'm astonished that you. I wanted to sit with these opening verses a little bit longer uh, because I think so often in the Christian life, uh, we live between these two sections of the letter. We've heard and, and we know and we believe what Jesus has done to bring grace and peace into the world. And yet so often we, we slide away from that truth. We miss it, we forget it, or we add to it. And Paul today challenges us uh, to take seriously uh, the message that he preached and to believe it and remember it, the gospel of Christ. He's surprised and shocked that these churches are turning to what he calls a different gospel. And so today we want to think about how could this happen and why did it matter so much to Paul that he had to write this letter? And to begin, we need to understand what the word gospel meant in the ancient world. Notice that Paul describes uh, the gospel as a proclamation in, in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, uh, let that one be accursed. And we're going to come back to this business of letting someone be accursed in a, in a minute. But, but first, let's just notice uh, that Paul says that the gospel is something that he proclaimed. This is something we can too quickly pass over. Uh, the gospel is a, is a message about something that has happened. That's what the word gospel means literally. The, the Greek word euangelion uh, simply means an announcement of good news. And we find this word uh, used in the Greek Old Testament in, in verses like Isaiah uh, chapter 52, verse 7, uh, when the prophet says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. He's talking about seeing a messenger crossing over the horizon uh, who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so it's used in the Old Testament is to describe that kind of message. But the term was also very familiar in Roman society. And we can be very specific about this because in 1899, an archaeologist unearthed an inscription in Western Turkey uh, called the Priene Calendar in Inscription. And it's now at the Berlin Museum. If you're ever in Berlin, you can go see it. And this inscription, which has been dated to 9 BC, celebrates the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it makes his, his birthday the starting point of a whole new calendar system. And it's, it's making this proclamation that went out across the empire. And here's, here's what it said, or part of it. Since providence has set everything in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, 
both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, let the calendar begin with year one as his birthday, it goes on to say. Uh, you, you hear that? Sound familiar in some ways? It, his birthday is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of salvation that he has brought to the empire. So if the Jewish people were saying that the gospel was the promise that God would come to make the world right, and the Romans had their own understanding of the gospel that was a proclamation of what Caesar had accomplished, at least for a little while, maybe a few decades, Christians were saying that the real gospel is what God has done in the person and work of Jesus. This is what we heard Paul summarize in, in verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. The gospel is this message declared, pronounced, of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who was a, a minister at Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, used to ask people a question to see if they really understood the Christian message. He would ask a person, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And if they answered, I'm trying, or I don't feel that I'm good enough yet, he would say, you don't get it. The gospel is not about what you must do for God. It's about what God has done for you. That's what makes you a Christian. It's not good advice, but good news. God saves the lost. God rescues the hopeless. God forgives the guilty. God saves sinners. Believe the good news. Believe the message. Now, I think we can understand why Paul is so astonished in response to what is happening in these churches. For Paul, the gospel was a public truth, uh, one that he announced to the world. It was an account of things that had happened. Jesus had lived, and he had died, and he'd risen again from the dead. And if Jesus was the crucified and risen Savior, then God had acted in history that made the world a different kind of place. Paul's concern was for this message. It's not about him and his authority, though he had authority. His concern was for the message. You can see this in verses 8 and 9, where he says that any other message, any other gospel, is accursed. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we've said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Now I think we can understand something of this 
this dramatic language of cursing. Notice, as, as Paul speaks that word, who does he start with? He doesn't start with his enemies or the, the, the false teachers that he felt he needed to combat. He starts with the angels and with himself. It's not that he's disappointed so much that they stopped listening to him as if he was personally offended in some way. He's holding up the gospel message as the standard, and he's subordinating all status and all authority, even his own, even the angels, to that. It may seem that, that Paul is being uncompromising and, and inflexible, but if he is as accountable to the gospel message as anyone else, then, in fact, you could say this is a very humble stance to take. So we've said that the gospel is, is a proclamation, but it's not a proclamation that, that just goes out and it doesn't matter what you do with it. It's also personal. How you respond to it matters. In verse 9, Paul says that they had previously received the gospel. He had proclaimed it, and they had received it. But now, in verse 6, he says that they are in danger of deserting the one who called them in the grace of Christ. The one who calls here, the one who called you in the grace of Christ, that's not Paul, uh, but God. Uh, wherever we see this language in the New Testament, it, it's always God who calls people in grace. In verse 15, just a little bit farther along, Paul will say that he himself was called by God in grace. So this is a very serious thing to say to them, that God himself had called them, and, uh, and, and now they were, they were turning their backs on him. How might this have been happening? Paul had started these churches on one of his missionary journeys, around the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, the Romans and Greeks. And then it seems that after he left, uh, other preachers had come and brought a different teaching to some of these churches that he had started. Like Paul, these were also Jewish Christian teachers. And what they seemed to say to the Galatians was something like, you know, Paul did a great job getting you started as Christians. But now, if you want to be spiritually mature and serious, you also need to obey the law of Moses. And specifically, the men really should be circumcised, like our father Abraham. In other words, uh, they were telling the people that in order to be true Christians... They needed to adopt Jewish customs and practices. Their message was, believe in Jesus, and then obey the law, and you will be saved. In response, Paul makes clear that the gospel that, that he proclaimed was all about what God had accomplished. That if you had Jesus, you had everything you needed for salvation. The, the, the gospel that he preached was believe in Jesus and you will be saved and then obey out of gratitude for what he has done for you. Not 
believe and obey, and then you will be saved. But believe and know that you are saved, and then obey out of thanks and praise. The order makes all the difference. Paul would not allow anything besides faith in Christ to be required for their salvation. Why? Because this would mean that the grace and peace that he declared was not really enough. That there was something insufficient in what Christ had done when he gave himself on the cross for our sins. He hadn't really set us free until we did our part. That there was something that he needed to do, yes, but also something that we need to do before we can have assurance that he really loves and accepts us. But the gospel of grace and what makes it grace is that you have received a great gift even though you've done nothing to deserve it. As Tim Keller says, the Bible is not primarily a series of stories with a moral, though there are plenty of practical lessons. Rather, it is a record of God's intervening grace in the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and who don't appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. If the starting point of the Christian life is not anything we have done, but what God has done for us, then one of the chief marks of a person who gets it, who, who believes the gospel, will be joy. Joy because you know that you've received a gift that you don't deserve and that you can never pay back. False gospels will always be suspicious of joy because there's always uncertainty about whether you've done really enough to earn God's favor. But if you believe that Jesus gave himself for your sins before you did anything for him, then you will be overjoyed to receive such a gift. In his uh, little book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis confesses that after he became a Christian, praise was one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life for him to grasp. He couldn't understand why God would need our praise and the command to praise God seemed to force it and, and to cheapen it. And then Lewis had an insight that changed his understanding of, of the nature of praise. He realized that we're always praising things throughout our lives. He says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. When you really are enjoying something, you say how good it is. You praise it. He writes, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, <laughs> rare beetles, even sometimes politicians <laughs> or scholars. People praise what they enjoy and what they value. And not only that, they also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? 
Don't you think that was magnificent? If you believe that you've received a beautiful and wondrous gift in the gospel of Christ, you will want to praise God for it. This brings us to our, our last point uh, about the gospel today. We, we've said that the, the gospel is a proclamation, the, the announcement of what God has done. We've said it is, that it's personal in, in how it comes to us and, and how we respond to it. We're involved. Finally, the, the gospel is powerful. Here's another word about the, the joy of the gospel. Leslie uh, Newbegin says, gospel mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. It's quite an image. We get just a taste of the gospel's power in uh, our passage today in Galatians 1, in verse 10, where Paul says, am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It seems that one of the accusations against Paul was that he was a people pleaser and he just wasn't willing to challenge the Galatians enough spiritually. In response, he says that he is willing to defend his teaching because he wasn't seeking human approval, but God's approval. This is powerful because if you've set, been set free from the approval of other people and are only seeking God's approval, it can empower you uh, to do the most courageous things. It shows us that when the gospel works its way into our hearts, it, it changes our, our motivations and our mindsets. When you believe that there's something you must do to earn God's favor and acceptance, then the result is always uh, either pride or fear. Fear if, if you've fallen short and you haven't lived up to the standards that you believe are required of you, and pride if, if you have done it. Uh, but pride always leads to self-righteousness and looking down on other people. The gospel declares that all of us have fallen short and failed to be the people we were meant to be. We all need a savior who comes to us from the outside. But God in Christ has moved towards us in love and brought us grace and peace through his sacrifice. When you trust that your approval doesn't come from other people, but as a gift of grace, then you are truly set free. You're set free from self-righteous pride and arrogance towards other people because you know that everything you have is a gift. It's not based on anything you've accomplished but you are also set free to humbly serve others, uh, to be what Paul says here, a, a servant of Christ. Let me end today with just a final thought about this, about what it means for us to, to serve together in that way. 
If, if you believe that, that Jesus is risen from the dead and that the crucified one has been enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, this has implications for every area of our life. It means seeking the, the internal transformation that we've been talking about to, to find our, our worth and our approval, not in what we've achieved, but in what we've received in Christ. But Christ's kingship also means that you can seek transformation in every area of life. The message of his grace has implications for how we do everything. And it's the role of the body of Christ, the, the church, uh, to hold him up as worthy of worship, to gather around his table and to be fed by him, and then to go out into the world to serve Christ. And friends, this is what we have the privilege of doing together here in Madison. It's just a part of his body. We are the church gathered together uh, here in this space for worship. But then we are also the church scattered uh, in homes and neighborhoods and offices and classrooms and science labs and artist studios, bearing witness to the gospel in the places where God has put us. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that invites us to look out at the whole world and to say, this is my Father's world. To praise him for it and to serve it. Not denying the things that are wrong, but trusting that God is sovereign, that he is faithful, and he can use even us for his good purposes. Verse 3 says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Amen. The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, we do declare that today, that you are king, that you've revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus, that you've declared to us uh, what you have done. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to trust it fully, uh, to believe it, to live it, and uh, to follow Christ uh, into the world, uh, to share this message with others. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.